You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. And welcome to The Exchange, everybody. I am Brian Sullivan. Here's what's ahead on a big 60 Minutes. It is now but a thousand days since the market peaked pre-pandemic. Is there any coming Fed pause or reason to think that we are going to go back to the new highs next year? Barry Knapp is here with that. Target shares, they are crashing. And you may not believe one reason why. We'll talk about it and hit all the retail earnings. And we are going to hear in moments from Carson Block. He just busted out a brand new short stock today. That stock is tanking. We'll give you the name, the trade, and why he thinks it will fall. We're going to get that in moments. But right now, let's get the macro markets with Mr. Dom Chu. And I do see some red on the screen behind you as well. Generally negative, so to speak, right? I mean, it's kind of not surprising given the fact we had a nice rally yesterday and everything going on. But if you take a look at the markets right now, with Airbnb shares, at least, that's the reason why they're up there right now. I'm not sure why, but I would show you what's happening with the overall markets. The indices right now, again, down kind of, in, you can see here, 21 points for the S&P 500, about half of 1%. To kind of put that in context, we were down 8 at the high, so a down day for the S&P and down 33 at the lows of the sessions. Drifting a little bit more in between that range so far today. The Dow Industrial is outperforming flat on the session, up 11 points. The Nasdaq Composite down 129 points or 1% as well, so the real laggard there, that tech trade. Now, if you take a look at the Nasdaq Composite, the largest stocks in the Nasdaq, the Nasdaq 100, have seen a nice rally, but that's starting to fade a little bit in today's trade. But what we can show you is overall that particular move for the Nasdaq, if we're going to show you, or it might not be because we have some technical glitches going on. But if you could see the Nasdaq chart, we're up about 12, 13 percent off the lows that we saw just about in October. So if you look at that move higher, what, whether or not we see any carryover, it's still a market downtrend there overall. One of the reasons why we are seeing that downtrend is shares of Amazon. Now, the company is reportedly getting close to laying off thousands of people, and that that may have already started. Some reports say around 10,000 corporate jobs. But Amazon shares now down about 1% in trading. They've been a big driver of the downside in not just the S&P 500, but the Nasdaq trade overall. And remember, about a year ago, we were talking about a company that was roughly $1.9 trillion in market cap. And now we're roughly about just about $980-some billion, so around $1 trillion dollars worth of market cap loss during that span. That's a huge deal for a stock, again, down 45%. And then the stock of the day has to be what's going on with Target, out with earnings earlier this morning. It was a mixed picture, but traders are certainly accentuating the negative today. Earnings coming in far shy of expectations. Revenues did come in slightly better. Comparable store sales, sales growth at existing store locations came in better than expected as well, but it's cutting its all-important fourth quarter holiday season forecast, and it's announcing a cost-cutting initiative to try to trim around $3 billion of costs, up to that amount over the next three years. So, Brian, target shares down 12%. Believe it or not, that's off the session lows. It's certainly one of those retail trades that a lot of folks are going to be talking about in the coming weeks as we head towards the holiday shopping season. Back over to you, Brian. Don't have to wait that long. We're going to be talking about target in like the next couple minutes. Tom Chu, thank you very much on our earnings exchange. All right, right now, though, happening, short seller Carson Block just laying out a huge new short. Let's go right now to Jumana Bersecci, who is at the Sone Conference in London with Carson Block of Muddy Waters. Jumana. That is correct, Brian. So we're here at the Sone Conference in London, and joining me right now is Carson Block, the founder of Muddy Waters. You just came off stage talking talking about your latest big shorts. So tell us what it is and a little bit, little bit about the rationale. Sure. We're short D-Local, which is a payment processor. Um, it went public in 2021, and it focuses on emerging markets, especially Latin America, very fast growing, 
um, margins that are far better than any of its comps. And the short of it is, we are highly concerned that this company is a fraud. So we, what, what we first saw when we looked at it were just revisions uh, that in what the company was saying about the components of its processing volume and then also discrepancies in certain accounts receivable. And a lot of times when we see that, that's the sort of mixed or those contradictory uh, disclosures, that can be because when you're not telling the truth, you kind of forget what you said before and things don't balance out. So that told us that there's a good chance there's something seriously problematic here. And then when we dove deeper into the company, we actually saw um, a series of, of events in accounting uh, related to a loan that was actually made to pre-IPO to um, the, the president and the CEO that the company seems to have taken pains to rewrite history. Now, our view is that either the disclosures around this are inaccurate, grossly inaccurate, um, as a result of a level of incompetence that few of us will ever experience in our lives, or it points to fraud. So likely they crossed the Rubicon there uh, in terms of changing accounts when they shouldn't have changed them, accounts that diverge from reality. And then we get to these questions about how, how the funds move. So when you look at the company's accounts, remember they're handling billions of dollars of mm -hmm. other people's money um, per year. And the annual run right now is almost $11 billion. So at any given time, there's a lot of money sitting there that doesn't mm -hmm. belong to them. And when we reconciled, uh, or we did reconciliations for 2020 at the consolidation level, meaning what they report in the SEC filings, as well as one of the key subsidiaries, it doesn't reconcile. It mm -hmm. doesn't, it, the company did not have the cash flow to make the payments in 2020 that it did. So that certainly brings up concerns about controls over client funds. Now, I will point out that the other possible explanations there are that the disclosures uh, that we relied upon are inaccurate or they're incomplete. But again, right. we saw this at the consolidation level and at a subsidiary level. And the subsidiary mm. level is a lot simpler mm. than the consolidation level. So. No, that, is, that is quite a big allegation, allegation of fraud. I should mention also that CNBC have reached out to the company. They have responded with no comment. Okay. But, I'm sure they will comment eventually. Well, yes. I, I want to just pursue that point because, again, it is um, a big allegation to call out a company for engaging in fraudulent activity. How do you discern the difference between, say, a company coming out with aggressive or optimistic marketing material and reports, uh, which is within the realms of what's legal versus actually engaging in ill faith, bad faith behavior? Oh, that's a, that's a great question. Because a lot of times what we saw, for example, with the SPAC booms, it was, or the SPAC boom was really about these overly optimistic forward-looking statements that they, people can fall back, companies could fall back and say, well, this, these were statements of opinion. We're talking about what did and did not happen and what the accounts show and what the company said about history. And what the company says about these loans is not what actually happened. And in the report that we released, we have a lot of paperwork that we've taken from subsidiary filings that show money moving at times and in ways that completely contradict what the company's story is. Um, and again, when you get to the cash flow, this is the sort of reconciliation that other investors can do um, and we provide the information in our reports to do it as well at the subsidiary level. But 
those are, I mean, that's, this is all based on their filings. Now, the one other thing that's also really important to keep in mind with this company is that when it went public in 2021, it, directors and managers, including some former directors and managers, sold about $330 million worth of stock in the IPO. The company only sold, I think, about $87 million worth of stock. Then there was a secondary offering just five months later in which the same group of insiders sold over $600 million worth of stock. So within five months of being public, and this is also within you know, just about a year of Wirecard blowing up, which is in the same industry, within five months of being public, they sold about a billion dollars worth of stock. I'm talking directors and, and managers, not just the, ven the venture capital fund that backs them. Hey, Carson, it's, uh, yeah, hey, Jumana, thank you, Carson, it's Brian Sullivan. Um, I, I want to make very clear, I think Jumana mentioned it, want to make very clear that these are your allegations, this is your proprietary research, and we have reached out to the company, so if and when they comment, we're going to bring it. It could be in a couple of minutes, could be tomorrow, could be never to your point, but I want to make that clear. These are serious allegations that you are making, Carson. That said, in your report, you note something called regulatory arbitrageur. What does that mean? How does that fall into your thesis? And if I were the company sitting here interviewing you and I said you're wrong, where could your thesis be wrong? Okay, so to the first question, there's, or, there's a long list of governance failings um, that we've published. And one of them, and the key one, is regulatory arbitrage. Specifically, we see that the company is, appears to be intentionally dodging regulation by the UK's Financial Conduct Authority, the FCA. And that's important because in 2020, so that's just in the lead up to um, the IPO, that's when Wirecard blew up. And within weeks, the FCA significantly tightened the rules and supervision of payments companies. So there are two primary subsidiaries that um, DLocal has here in the UK that handle a substantial amount of the payment flow. Well, one of those subsidiaries was set up in 2020 and apparently has no employees. The other subsidiary, which was a legacy one, at the end of 2019 had 57 employees, I believe. The end of 2020 had zero. Now, why is that? We suspect that the company is trying to avoid supervision by the FCA by saying, hey, we have no physical presence here. But that's not true. They have a bunch of employees who apparently were novated to the Uruguayan entity, but are still based in the UK. So we're not certain that that's the exemption that the company claims to avoid being regulated by the FCA, mm -hmm. but we suspect it is. But regardless, these are major payment processing entities, and we see no reason why they're not licensed by the FCA and overseen by the FCA. Instead, they're overseen by Malta under an EU payment processing license. Mm. Now, as far as what the company would say, um, I don't know. We present a lot of different elements here. I mean, they probably wouldn't ask questions, but I think they would just, I mean, look, what companies tend to say is, you don't understand our industry, um, you don't get it, and you, your, your report is full of factual errors and you're a short seller. So what I invite the company to do then is to go out and actually explain what those errors are. Now, a lot of times in those responses, though, they'll, they won't answer the questions that they're actually being asked. They'll answer questions that they wish they were asked. So investors need to read closely, unfortunately, side by side, what we wrote with what the company says our allegation is, and then try to figure out whether the company is actually responding to our conclusions or they're just 
effectively responding to something that we're not accusing them of. Carson, can I ask you about sizing here and uh, quote unquote staying power? Because oftentimes it takes a little bit of time for these shorts to work out. You're drawing some parallels with Wirecard over here in Europe, which was a big story, similar kind of story that you're presenting. But it took a while for the short to play out. So how are you thinking about sizing your position? So it took years for that to play out. And I mean, really, Wirecard first came under suspicion in 2008. And for anybody who shorted Wirecard in 2008, I mean, the stock went up numerous times before it blew up in 2020. I mean, one thing that's a big difference here is that Wirecard was protected by the German state. They had the regulators go after Financial Times journalists as well as pretty much every short seller who spoke publicly about the company. That will not happen in the case of D-Local. So I don't think you get that kind of protectionism. But I mean, we have to we have to manage positions. There's a threshold that when a company goes um, reaches mm-hmm. that threshold, we trim, and then when it's, the stock starts coming down, if we think it's broken, then we'll add back. But it's look, it's hard managing risk on the short side. Vast majority of short fund managers have gone out of business since the financial crisis. So it's more art than science when it comes to that risk management. Carson, I want to jump back in and, and change gears. By the way, DLO stock is down about 26% on this. And again, we are waiting for the company to respond. If you're out there watching DLO management, give us a call, send an email. We're here for you. I want to talk about a bigger potential fraud because you're known to dig into books for months or maybe longer. And I want to talk about FTX. And sort of bizarrely, Carson, actually they are connected a little bit because in a regulatory filing, DLocal says it had $5 million with FTX, that's neither here nor there. What Do you have a take on what's going on at FTX? Because it appears, it appear, it, listen, it appears that there's more due diligence being done on somebody applying for TSA pre-check than billion-dollar institutions did on this firm. And I want to get your take as somebody who digs into books for a living. What the hell happened here? Well, um, I think this is a great example of greed and FOMO. I mean, if I'm going to be a little bit glib for a moment and speak as though there is a collective mind that controls these things. But when it came to crypto, okay, why did every why did everybody flood into crypto? Well, during our lifetimes, we saw the equity bubble, right? And people such as myself, even though I wasn't a short seller, but I was still skeptical at the time, said, "Hey, this doesn't make sense. It's different this time." Turned out not to be. So retail was easily able to buy equities. They learned a lesson. Then houses. People like me voiced skepticism. No, it's different this time. Then that blew up. So there needed to be, in order to have an enormous bubble, there needed to be an entirely new asset class that nobody could, you know, that nobody could say, well, this has happened before. Because to get this kind of bubble and to trust charlatans like Sam Bankman-Fried and his uh, coterie, you have to have a suspension of disbelief. And so it needed to be an an asset that barely has any value. I mean, the the crypto, as I understand it, there's generally some value in the gas fees. But if you look at the value at which these things trade, I mean, we're talking the real value is a sliver of the entire price of these things. So it's been a bubble and it's been unregulated. These guys sit in in Bermuda. I mean, so who's who's minding the story? This was an on... 
Bahamas, yeah. And this was one of these things that it, several months ago, I just quickly took a look and I just felt there's obviously something wrong here because he went from zero to I'm worth $20 billion. I'm putting our logo on Major League Baseball umpire uniforms and on the Miami Heat arena. It seemed like really trying hard to establish yourself as a household name. And there was an interesting article that was done, I think, last September about Alameda Research in which they, the, the reporter said, oh, we verified the assets of blah billion, but it was in substantially all in Solana. And when I was reading this, Solana had tanked and they didn't talk about the debt. So when Sam Bankman Fried was out there saying after they owned 20 percent of Robinhood, maybe I'll buy it. That said to me, this is a guy trying desperately to avoid a margin call. And then, you know, I was wondering, OK, well, what happened to the value of all the assets relative to the debt that I assumed Alameda had? Yeah, it's client money. And again, when nobody's minding the store and there's very little regulation and it's an asset that really is of questionable reality, this is what you get. Carson, a question on your broader portfolio. Uh, last year, we saw an attack of the short sellers by the meme stock community, the retail investing community. Is there still a legacy impact of that? Does it affect the way, the way you think about your next shorts? Well, we did get a lot more tune, and this actually started happening towards the end of 2020. So second half of 2020, we really started thinking a lot more about technicals and flows and you know, passive that must buy stock and what really is the actual float. Because when you look at you know, the nominal float of stock, you, you, when you look at, say, looked at GameStop at that time that it squeezed, well, the nominal float was this, but then you take out the Ryan Cohen portion and the Michael Burry portion and the Korean family office portion, and then you've got the passive holders. So there was really only this much float. And when you have this much short exposure to this much real float, that's what you get, that kind of squeeze. So it really did make us pay a lot more attention, not just to the nominal float, but to the, the actual float and how much passive money was flowing into it. So, But that, again, that process did start for us in probably July, August of 2020 when we were short this um, fraud from China called GSX. That guy, Bill Huang, has since been arrested for uh, manipulating that um, allegedly. Well, on that note, we're going to leave it there. Thank you very much for joining CNBC today, Carson. Thank Carson you. Block from Muddy Waters. I'll toss it back to you, Brian. All right, Jumana Brissetti and Carson Block, thank you. Just a quick note here, a reminder that, again, we have reached out to D-Local. DLO is the ticker on these allegations. They are Carson's allegations with his own proprietary research. If and when the company reaches out to us, we will bring their comments to you. All right, coming up. Remember when the smart money told you back in January that Macy's was going to outperform big tech stocks? Of course you don't remember because it never happened. But that's exactly what's happening. And we'll talk about retail coming up. Here's the good news. Inflation starting to come down, at least for things like used cars and socks. The not-so-good news, one big retailer, Target, seeing a weak consumer ahead and raising red flags about a potentially weak Christmas. So where does retail and the markets your money go from here? Joining us now is Barry Knapp, Managing Partner and Director of Research at Ironsides Macroeconomics. I'd like to talk about Carson Block and FTX, but I'm told you're coming on to talk about the markets and inflation. So with that said, Mary Daly kind of throwing water on the old Fed pivot, Barry. What's your take? Oh, I'm not sure she... <clears throat> really threw 
water on the pivot so much. Um, first of all, I, I've been describing it not as a pivot, but when you hit that rate of change point where they slow the pace of hikes and then uh, eventually they'll pause, I'm not actually in the camp that they're going to be cutting in 2023. I think they're going to stop sooner than most market participants expect because of some of the things that, that Daly uh, mentioned, her talk about the labor market starting to cool, her focus on goods prices, uh, because of what Lael Brainerd's been talking about, financial conditions. We just had a 20-year auction. I'm sure you'll go to Rick Santelli about it. It was particularly strong. But just before CPI, we had a decidedly weak 10-year auction. So we still have that market functioning and, and um, financial instability issue to deal with. Um, but ultimately, what I've been penciling in with Steve's survey, Steve Leisman, that is, is that the Fed pauses sooner than most people think, but then actually finds themselves tightening again in the back half of next year. Mm. That said, that path from 9% CPI down to four through the end of this year and the first half of next year should be a very favorable period for uh, for equities and for treasuries, for that matter. And that's really for most people what we should be focusing on right now. Yeah, I, go, I, go, I, go year, back, I go back. I go back. I go all the way back to 1995. Back in the old days, took a horse to work, you know. And <laughs> and the, the Fed raised rates. I think it was two and a half percent, two fifty basis points, two and a half percent in 1994. In 1995, the Dow rose, I think it was 33%. I'm going off memory, so maybe off a little bit, but you get my directionally correct comment, Barry. My point is, just because the Fed is raising rates does not mean the stock market cannot still go up. I think I said like eight negatives, but you get my point there. Yeah, I, I talk about that period all the time. I was actually taking a ferry to work in those days across the World Financial Center, but um, uh, pre 9-11. But the S&P went up 37% that year. You're exactly right. And the, and the real inflection point came after the 75 basis point hike in November. They then did another 50. They never really announced a pause or a pivot until June of that year. But they they just stopped with the process and the stock market exploded. Tech led the way. Banks went up 55%. The banking sector looks very similar in terms of price to book, valuation, and return on equity as it did back then. And the market exploded through that period in 1995 when Greenspan was giving speeches about they may have overdone it and there's a recession risk. So that the dynamic is pretty similar to um, to 95 when the Fed funds rate was hiked from three to six, as you acknowledge. So that's a, that's a pretty good analog period for people to think about. Yep, trying to put a positive spin on rate hikes, higher rates, although I will say, Barry, Americans now have almost a trillion dollars in credit card debt, which is mostly resolving, and over two trillion in added household debt. A lot of that is home equity line, which also may be movable as well. Student loan debt. We'll see what happens. Barry Knapp, Ironsides, macroeconomics. Thank you very much. All right, coming up, do you have crypto losses? Well, if so, you might be looking to ease the pain, right? Well, don't worry. Sharon Epperson is here. She got some advice from the pros about how to find maybe a bit of a silver lining in all this. Stick around. All right, welcome back. Let's talk solar stocks, because with the big climate spending bill now in force, a lot of money is expected to go to the industry and solar related names like Sunrun, Sonova, First Solar, Enphase Energy. They're all up in the past month. Your next guest initiating coverage on many of these stocks and see some um, 
bright days ahead for the sector. Joining us now is Corinne Blanchard. She is research analyst at Deutsche Bank. I hope I got the right inflection on the last name. Did I get it right? C'est vrai? That's pretty good, Brian. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Je vous en prie. Je parle français. We can do it in bad French if you want, but let's do it in in English or listen. Would be better in English, I think. Can understand. (laughs) What is the macro thesis on solar? Does it all have to do with the Inflation Reduction Act, or is there something else here? Good question. I I think there is a little bit more. in, definitely, the Inflation Reduction Act is, I think, the most powerful regulatory environment that we have ever seen, at least at the federal level. Because I think if you take a look at um, on the state level, and you know, especially California, this might be a little bit of a different story. Um, but I think overall, there is more than, than just that. And we're pretty bullish and, and confident on the industry growth for, for the coming years. And, and look, it might not be a straight linear growth year over year, but that space, you know, we're talking about secular growth stock. Um, and that's really underpinned by, by the number of positive we're seeing. So it's a fairly untapped market. Um, when you think about it, it's only about 4% of U.S. homes today that have panel system on. Uh, we believe, you know, that could go to 15% penetration rate by 2030. So that's a significant growth rate that you can see over the next, you know, eight years. Um, and then I think it's also a question when you bring it to um, uh, macro, it's a question of comparing clean energy versus utility when consumers have been hit with significant price increase over mm-hmm. the last year, pushing them to favor solar. So I think when you pack them all that together, you have, um, you know, one of the most powerful macro and environment uh, for for the stock. Do you worry about an economic slowdown in the United States, even with some tax credits? Solar, at least the initial installation, is not cheap. You might get the return down the road, but it's not cheap. And borrowing costs have gone up. That's a very good question. And, and, you know, we look into that and, and I think um, we're not really seeing the slowdown right now. And I think you have a very strong backlog uh, from most of the residential company right now pushing for a strong 4Q, a strong 1Q, and probably 2Q. Um, I would probably uh, put some you know, focus into the second half of next year um, as well when the net meter in 3.0 in California could come in place, which, you know, by the way, actually right now is being discussed uh, and we're expecting a decision by mid-December. So I think over the very near term, I don't really think that will have an impact. You might see a shift versus, you know, uh, people maybe mm-hmm. going through more like lease or PPA versus uh, loan, but I think that that's a, a minimal impact for, for the space. All right. Buy on Sonova, buy on Enphase, and a buy on First Solar, as well as some others, I believe. It was uh, votre première apparition, apparition sur CNBC, your first appearance on the network, correct? All right. Thank you, Brian. Well, congratulations. Corinne Blanchard of Deutsche Bank. Clean tech. Thank you. All right. Now, let's get a CNBC News update with Tyler Matheson. And it will be in all English, Brian. Thanks very much. Here's what's happening at this hour, folks. Mitch McConnell has been reelected as Republican leader in the Senate. He fended off a challenge from Florida's Senator Rick Scott. The final vote was 37 to 10 with one abstention. It was the first ever attempt to oust McConnell after many years as GOP leader. Prosecutors say the University of Virginia's shooting suspect was targeting specific victims one of whom was shot in his sleep. 
Christopher Darnell Jones is charged with killing three of the school's football players. Lake effect snow piling up in parts of Michigan and northern Indiana. It is coming at down at one to two inches an hour. Six to ten total forecast. The Buffalo, New York region. You know, it snows a little in Buffalo. Expected to get the worst of this storm as it often does with some areas at the risk of getting three or four feet of snow, folks, by Sunday. Winter. Brian is coming. And I want to say something serious to you, my friend, because a lot yes. of people may not know. They know that you are a Wahoo. You are a UVA yep. graduate. And obviously the tragedy there just and, and Virginia Tech's been on the other side of this. And I am a Virginia Tech Hokie. And I think yep. I think I can speak for the Hokie Nation when I say our thoughts. Everything yep. goes out to our one Commonwealth, UVA. Thoughts out well, there to the Capital Nation. We uh, grieve together. Yep. And you've been through it. Yep. So thank you, my all right, brother. Tyler, thank you. All right, coming up. Cisco, NVIDIA, Macy's, they've all got results on deck. All are negative. Into the print, we'll get the action story in the trade. And earnings exchange, Jeff Pilberg is here. Stick around. All right, welcome or welcome back, everybody. We hope you've been with us for a while. It's time now for earnings exchange, the action the story in the trade. And today we're doing it on Cisco Systems, NVIDIA, and Macy's. First up, Cisco. Shares down nearly 30% this year. Continues to struggle with macro headwinds, supply constraints, Left the company with an enormous order backlog. Frank Holland joining us now with the story. Jeff Kilberg on set, by the way, founder and CEO of KKM Financial and a contributor. Frank, kick it off. What is the story on Cisco? Well, hey there, Brian. You know, shares Cisco down 30% over the year, as you mentioned. But over the last month or so, they've been trading even with the S&P, up double digits. So the real question about Cisco is the supply chain. The company flagged a lot of supply chain issues over recent quarters. In fact, they had to redesign hundreds of products. They had to source components from different places. Um, a lot of issues here. We're even redesigning some products in the backlog due to the COVID lockdowns in China. They had a lot of optimism those COVID lockdowns would ease. But as of yet, we just, not ha- we just haven't seen it in uh, China. Uh, and also what you're seeing here, here is signs that the, the back the issues of the supply chain are just not easing. So the company also reported a record backlog. They didn't give us the numbers on that record backlog, but we do have some insight into the backlog with report, re- remaining performance obligation or RPO. I'm going to show you a chart right here. As you can see, it stayed pretty stable over the last four quarters with about 53 to 54% of that expected to be realized over the next 12 months. Now, that's kind of a mixed signal. It shows a strong demand pipeline, but at the same time, it just shows it's not converting orders out of that backlog as quickly as it would like. And then third, last, but certainly not least, the issue about guidance. Uh, Last quarter, Cisco gave some full-year guidance of 4 to 6% revenue growth for the full year. That was with the dollar being a headwind for the company and a lot of other companies. Cisco gets about 40% of its revenues outside of the Americas. So the question now, with the dollar down about 5% over the last month, will that change the guidance when it comes to revenue? Well, Frank ended on a question. (laughs) Answer Frank's question. I'll take it from there, Pat. I think you're absolutely right. When you talk about this backlog, that is the trillion-dollar question, maybe not a trillion dollars, but a multi-billion-dollar question. If they can deliver, if they have no cancellations on that, it's trading at a forward PE of 12 and a half times. So when you look at Cisco, yes, it's been beaten up, but I want to be a buyer here. I think you want to be a buyer as you continue to see them get market share in cloud. I think when you talk about the name itself, it has the ability to recover. So it will be fascinating to see if Cisco can kind of come back from really being beaten up, but there is value in this growth name, Sully. We should have done this standing up between the three of us. It's, I think it's 19 feet 
<laughs> one inch. We're ready for CNBC's big three team. That, that big three. Yeah, we need to get in there. That's it. 19 feet. One. I think it would be the total. All right, Frank. Yeah. Thank you very hey, much. Hey, Brian. One yeah. other thing. Yeah. Margin's something to watch. Uh, the information had a report out a few weeks ago about uh, CEO Chuck Robbins saying he wanted to spend about a billion more dollars to retain workers. Margin's been an issue for this company, as they mentioned. They're redesigning products. They're sourcing from different places. So something else to watch. That a lot of analysts look at when it comes to this company. Good stuff. Margin's very important, and they're paying people more. Agreed. Frank, thank you. All right. Next up, semiconductor. NVIDIA. Now, Micron today, Micron announcing it would make more cuts to its capital spending plan. I think a lot of people are concerned maybe NVIDIA could be next. Christina Partsinevelis joins us. There's some worries out there. Well, I have some worries, but then if you read some lines from analyst reports close to a bottom, risk reward remains attractive, captures long-term opportunities. And this is all about NVIDIA. And those are three different quotes from three different analysts. So it seems like the street is, is some are even calling a bottom. Some are quite bullish on the stock. Uh, they're saying that data center revenue, which accounts for 57% of the quarterly revenue for uh, NVIDIA, uh, is, is going to be a strength. It's going to help offset the weakness from possibly mining and and crypto, we know that's been pretty fickle over the last little while. And you pointed just before to the stocks in general. NVIDIA stock has increased, what, 36% in just the last month alone? So will this continue? Is a lot of the bad news already baked into the stock? Another driver could be the fact that uh, NVIDIA said in August that they would have a $400 million hit in the quarter because of Chinese revenue loss. And that was because of the U.S. export rules uh, that were imposed. However, just, what, two weeks ago, they announced that they had had a chip that mm-hmm. would I shouldn't use the word circumvent, but got the the green light, the green stamp of approval from the U.S. so they can provide this chip to Chinese customers. So maybe this will be seen as a good thing. However, the margins on that chip that they're going to be selling to China is lower. So that could hurt. And two of the major things, though, is data center revenue. Will that hold up and offset weakness elsewhere? And then will the Chinese revenue fall not be as bad as expected? And keep in mind, too, Meta. They announced that they were going to increase their CapEx. Meta wants to spend on AI. NVIDIA makes AI chips, could be a beneficiary. So we'll be looking for comments on that as well. There's the story from Christina, Jeff. What's the trade? Christina, great story. And I think the trade is you want to be a buyer here. To her point, you've seen a lot of this priced in. If you look at where it started in 2022, this was above $300. So it's come down dramatically. But what's interesting today is the Microsoft announcement. There is a deal. If you remember the movie War Games, so you remember the Whopper, the supercomputer? I literally watched it last night. <laughs> no, I'm not, I'm not no, joking. Did. 100%. I, I, and I, we never talked about this. I literally watched it last night. Well, that's remarkable. What they're doing right now is they're building a supercomputer. So NVIDIA's GPUs, their graphic processing years, they're going to be buying tens of thousands. So Microsoft is going to be gobbling up tens of thousands of these chips, which is going to potentially put a bottom in this stock. But I think if you look at the 2 day moving average at 182, you want to be a buyer here. But you watch. I'm not. I'm not. I don't know how you. I'm not. We did not. To the viewer listener, we did not talk, did we? No. (laughs) Mr. McKittrick, I've come to the conclusion that your system blank. I literally watched it last night. Don't don't judge me, by the way. That is random, but interesting. So is Christina. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you, Random but interesting. Yeah, I'll take it. RBI. All right, there we go. Finally, let's talk about Macy's. Macy's, I mean, they literally made a Christmas movie at Macy's, sort of about Macy's. So will it be a merry holiday season? Had a pretty good, decent year relatively so far. Let's ask CBC.com reporter Melissa Repko. Melissa. Hey, Brian. Yes, Santa's about to come to Macy's. And the big question is, are shoppers ready to spend? Especially after what we heard this morning from Target, there's a lot of questions around whether shoppers are feeling in the holiday spirit, if they really feel that holiday cheer or if they feel pinched by inflation and are going to pull back. 
The second factor I'm watching is inventory. There's been a lot of talk about this, and actually Macy's has been in a better spot. Its inventory was up 7% year over year last quarter in a much better position than a lot of its competitors that were up by the double digits. Has it gotten in an even cleaner position going into the holiday quarter? And then the third and final factor I'll be looking at is the discount dilemma. Even if Macy's is in a cleaner inventory position, the problem is that a lot of promotions are all over the place because shoppers see that excess inventory, and so they expect everything to be a bargain. And so Macy's, like other retailers, will be under pressure, and so how much will that weigh on their profits? All right, Macy's. Now, the good news is the stock is up off its lows of a year ago. The bad news is down 8% today, likely on sympathy from Target. What's the trade on the big M, Macy's. I don't think you catch a falling knife here, Sully. I know Melissa said that we want to see Santa show up to Macy's this holiday season, but I hope bad Santa doesn't show up. Because what we've seen in Macy's for the last decade, Sully, 2.5% decrease annually in their dividend. That does not reveal strength to a shareholder. So what I find interesting is they're almost done with their three-year makeover. Remember the Polaris strategy that they rolled out for this three-year makeover? They're still finalizing that, but they haven't really found a bottom yet. So I get a little nervous here. Obviously, it has a big downdraft today. I want to stay away from Macy's, Sully. Staying away from Macy's. You like NVIDIA. What was the Cisco? Cisco I like as well. So two buys and a bail, I guess we'd call that. Melissa Repco on Macy's. Thank you very much. By the way, got some breaking news here. Speaking of war games, Guy Adami just texted me and said, I had a huge crush on Ali Sheedy. <laughs> to which I responded, Guy Adami, who didn't? Correct. Correct. Right? Yes. What a great movie. Would you like to play a game? <laughs> Jeff Kilberg, thank you. All right, still ahead. Munis and the midterms. We're going to dig into the bond boom that could soon be underway thanks to last week's election and whether it will be the catalyst that turns the Muni market around. Stick around. All right, welcome back to The Exchange. The balance of power was not the only thing determined in the midterm elections. Voters also approved some $57 billion for local projects, things like road paving and school and police buildings, which will translate to about $90 billion more in municipal debt issued. That is the largest amount of bond issuance approved on an election day in at least a decade. Is this the turnaround that the beaten down mini market needs? Let's bring in now Tom Koslick. He is head of municipal research and analytics at Hilltop Securities. First off, I find it amazing. Everybody wants better schools, ventilation. We know all this stuff. The $130 billion to, quote, reopen schools. Most of that's not going to be paid out for, for years. We know that as well. But it's still coming. Why are these school districts issuing so much debt now? So thanks for having me, Brian. I really appreciate it. I think that there was a uh, one, of, one of the most important takeaways from my perspective from uh, last week's elections was you know, the bond, the, the bond referendum approvals that you're talking about. And I think that that sends a really strong message to lawmakers that infrastructure is important. Uh, the infrastructure that we've seen, the infrastructure upgrades and uh, the infrastructure uh, financings that we've seen over the last couple of years have not been enough. I think that this sends a message that uh, infrastructure is important to taxpayers. And most importantly, it sends the message that taxpayers are willing to pay for infrastructure. Okay, so how do we make off, make up money off all of this spending? How do our viewers make money from that debt? So one of the things that I think uh, investors need to be thinking about going into 2023 is that uh, municipal yield yields, and specifically municipal yields, have uh, risen uh, 
pretty substantially. Uh, one of the things that I've been talking to investors about, especially over the last couple, not just weeks, but months, is that it's not necessary to uh, reach for yield and increase the amount of risk that folks are taking. I'm recommending right now that folks are looking at you know, high-grade state and local governments just because the yields uh, on the, at, are so substantially higher than what they were you know, at the beginning of, uh, of the year. Yeah. Is there any type you like more than others? Not all muni debt is there's there's states, there's there's cities, there's counties. Where are we buying? Yeah, that that's a good point. And, I, and I'll add to that, Brian, that uh, even all the high grades and the you know double A category for state and local governments, they're not all the same. You know, the, the issues that I'm talking to investors about specifically are those uh, that are more structurally balanced, that, you know, there's been a substantial amount of federal money that's moved into state local government debt. That is helping to make it so upgrades have significantly outpaced downgrades over the last couple of quarters. And I'm expecting that to happen over the next at least, you know, into the middle of next year. But I'm talking to investors about really uh, zeroing in on those high grade state and local governments that are structurally balanced that are going to keep their credit quality uh, it, you know, if and when there is a recession uh, at the end of next year. All right. Municipal bonds, a lot of, lot of debt on the ballot as well. Building out news, $2 billion in Austin, Texas for schools. That's a, of course, that city's growing so fast, they'll probably need more soon. Tom, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thanks, Brian. All right. Tom Kozak of Hilltop Securities. Coming up, if you are a crypto investor who has lost a lot of money this year, first off, you're not alone. But you're going to want to stick around because tax season could provide eh, a little bit of a silver lining to your losses. Stick around. As always, one more thing before we go. And if you've lost a bunch of money in the crypto crash, this is for you. There is a way to ease some of that pain, and it comes down to taxes. Sharon Epperson joining us now with that story. Sharon, give us a little reason for hope. There is some hope. There is, in fact, a silver lining as well in those steep losses in digital currencies this year. You could also actually have some gains, even with Bitcoin down over 60% this year. If you were trading a lot of Bitcoin or another digital currency on the ride up, you may have some profits and a tax surprise. So here's how to avoid that. Whether you have profits from crypto or mutual fund payouts at the end of the year or other assets like the sale of an investment property, you can use crypto losses and other capital losses to offset capital gains. If you have more losses left over, you can use them to offset up to $3,000 of ordinary income this year and then carry forward extra losses to future years. Now, there's usually an important rule you also have to follow in tax loss harvesting in order to realize that loss. Investors are blocked from buying a substantially identical security 30 days before or after the sale. You can't uh, buy Microsoft, sell it at a loss, and then buy it back the next day. The IRS will say, you are not allowed to use that loss. You got to stay out for at least 30 days to avoid what's called the wash sale rule. That does not apply with crypto. That Washell rule does not apply to crypto because the IRS treats it as property, not a security. So you can buy Bitcoin or another digital currency right back after you sell it. Ryan? Okay, so if you have money in FTX and you don't know the status of the money, could this, how, how would you work around with that if you don't actually know what you may have lost? I mean, maybe you counted as zero. This is the key part here. You have to actually have assets to sell in order to 
ha use this tax loss harvesting strategy. And so talking to the IRS, they don't have guidance at this time on that particular situation. So there are still looking into this. They don't have guidance right now. People are just going to have to wait and see what happens. Yeah, or and hopefully get their money back or know what they lost for those taxes, I suppose. Absolutely. That's, that's a double hit for those folks that have the money in yes. FTX. Yeah. Yes. Sharon Epperson, good stuff. Maybe a little, right. little silver linings playbook, I, I guess, in what's been a tough year. That's right. All right, folks, just Take a quick care. recap here. If you missed the top of the show, DLO, D-Local, it is the name Carson Block, just shorting it. Want to be clear, we still have not, we reached out to the company for comment because he was alleging all kinds of stuff. We have not uh, heard back, as far as I know, from DLO, D-Local. They are based in Uruguay. So again, if and when they do give us a statement, we'll bring it to you. Stock down 25%. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.